0: Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at TrinityHarborChurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning to you. The passage today on which the teaching is based comes from Luke, chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 19. As you turn there, either in your Bibles or in your worship guide, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In the course of our new sermon series, or relatively new, chosen to be sent. We've been looking at the biblical reality that God saves, he, he chooses, He puts His love on people and draws them near, so that they in turn might be an agent of extending that salvation and that love to others. In essence, you are chosen for a purpose. This purpose is participating in God's very mission to redeem the world. But what does it actually look like to participate in that mission of redemption? In order to unpack that a bit, what we've been doing is looking at one clause of our mission statement each week. In fact, we're spending two weeks on each clause, and the first week we look at a negative example to help us understand what it doesn't look like. And last week, as we began to consider the clause of our mission statement, which is that we're committed to healing the broken, we looked at the, the story of Saul. But today we're looking at a positive example of what it means to understand the aspect of the gospel which we characterize by the phrase, healing the broken. And this refers both to the healing that we experience and also to the healing that we believe that we are called to extend to others. And there are three things, really, that you need to understand. And it's this passage is so much at the heart of the gospel that the three things that we're going to work at today are not only about understanding this passage, they're about understanding the Bible and understanding the world. And until you understand what we're talking about today, you don't, you may be wrestling with aspects of the gospel and Christianity, but you're not really there yet until so you start to really understand and put to work some of the things we're going to talk to, talk about today. And the, the titles of each section are a little bit longer. And so I'm just going to give you, to, give them to you one at a time. So the first thing that we have to get down as we start to engage this passage is that everyone worships, which means everyone is a lover. All right? That's an essential truth of humanity because it's how God created us. Everyone worships, which means everyone is a lover. Now this is something that we, regu- we regularly emphasize at Trinity Harbor. And we regularly emphasize it, not because we run out of things to say so much, as it's essential to understanding the story of the Bible and the good news of Jesus Christ itself. Everyone worships, everyone longs to give praise to something. Everyone longs, has this this need, which is utterly human, to give your love to something, to place it upon something. Think only for a few moments about what goes on in your life when you see something that captures your passion, captures your affection, whether it's a TV show or a book or a movie or a piece of art or a new technology or a song. Right? What do you do? You have to grab someone. You pull at their shirt sleeve and you say, have you seen this? Have you heard this? You want it to be experienced by someone else so that there's something in that that augments your sense of joy as other other people participate in the worship of that thing and as you give it praise and adoration. And it reveals to us that that really at the heart of worship is love. What you worship is what you love. And what you love is going to be what you're going to worship. Let me tell you the story of a woman named Sarah. Sarah. Sarah's dad used a phrase growing up that was sort of apparently a blanket phrase in her home, and it was both frustrating and humorous at the same time, because he really had only one go-to line for the family and for the kids at large, and it was this, it's all about choices. And so apparently he would use that in every situation, and sometimes it would be relatively appropriate, right? If Sarah had gotten a bad grade, her dad would say, well, Sarah, it's all about choices, And maybe she had made the choice to hang out with friends rather than study the night before. And indeed, that was a fair statement. It was all about choices. But other things would come up and say, Dad, my dad got, Dad, my car got stolen. And her dad would say, Well, Sarah, it's all about choices. Or she'd say, You know, I broke my tailbone. Well, it's all about choices. And so it was this maddening phrase that sometimes was more appropriate than at other times. But what's interesting about Sarah's family is that she knew exactly in the moment when this phrase came into existence in her family. It was an, on an autumn evening in 1990, and she was 12 years old. And her family had caused a uh, or her family had called a family meeting in the den, which was unprecedented for them. They know so she knew something was up. And as she entered the den, her sister, who was away at college, had miraculously arrived for the family meeting, heightening the, the tension, the expectation of what may come down. And so they're, they're gathering, and of course, Sarah, being 12, is assuming that this is an announcement that her parents are getting a divorce. And her mother speaks first, and her mother says, children, we are not getting a divorce. She thinks, whew. But at that moment, her father begins to weep uncontrollably. And she, she doesn't know what to do. And so her, her dad eventually collects himself and he manages to communicate, uh, kids, I've done something wrong. I have stolen money that wasn't mine. And then in the morning, I'm turning myself into the authorities and our life is going to radically change. And what had happened was this. Sarah grew up in an incredibly wealthy home. Her dad was a very prominent and successful lawyer. And when he had come out of law school and just started at his firm, he was working tons of hours, and this young couple came to see him. And what had happened was their baby was born in a hospital, and the the baby was mentally retarded, and there was good evidence that this mental retardation was the result of the hospital's negligence. The couple was young, they didn't have any money, and Sarah's dad took the case pro bono worked like a dog, and um, the hospital agreed that there was enough that they settled out of court for a very large sum of money. Sarah's dad ended up being named, it was all put in a trust for the child that the child could exercise later in life, and until that time, Sarah's dad was made the trustee. Well, they lived a big life. Sarah describes her house as the house that would never end. Both her parents drove Porsches, and over the years they, they acquired more and more things. It's how they lived. It's what they lived for. And at some point, the money wouldn't cover all the expenses. And her dad, probably saying to himself, you know, I did this case pro bono. I'm going to put the money back, he said to himself. No one will know it's gone. Started to write checks from the trust fund that was established for the child. Until the checks got bigger and bigger and had covered more and more of their expenses. And it was deeper and deeper until it was a, a terrible situation. The guilt and shame of which eventually came crashing down. And he was going to turn himself in. And indeed, it would make make their life drastically different. But think about Sarah's dad. Because it's such an excellent picture of how we are all lovers. We're all worshiping. Sarah's dad and Sarah's mom at that time in their lives came to worship materialism. They worshiped having things and acquiring things and living a certain kind of life. And eventually, when it wasn't enough and they wanted more and more and more, they had to make bigger and bigger sacrifices. And it started with a small check from that trust fund. And then it required larger and larger sacrifices. Right? When we're loving something, when we're worshiping something, it is, in biblical terms, a false god. And every check that Sarah's dad wrote out of that trust fund was a sacrifice on the altar to the god of materialism. And it eroded his life and sucked him in. But He loved materialism. It's what he had to have. It's what he was worshiping. It's what he was giving his life to. As we begin to consider our story, we're shocked by the reality that only one of the lepers returns to be thankful. And in that, it means that nine didn't return to be thankful. And in that, it means that nine, rather than choosing to worship the right thing, chose to go and worship something else because... Understand, you can't not be a worshiper. You are going to worship something, and if it isn't Jesus, it's going to be something else. And for the nine out of ten lepers, it was something else that they moved on to. We don't know what, but they opted to worship something else. Everyone worships, and everyone is a lover. And you've been created to worship and love God, but the, one of the deep problems of sin is that we are prone to worship and love the wrong thing. And really what you have to understand is sin isn't nearly so much about what you are doing, but about what you are loving. Right? Parents, are you frustrated in raising your children? Parenting doesn't really begin. You don't really get parenting until you realize that if you are only controlling the behavior of your children, you are not really serving them. You are not parenting them well because anyone can be taught to do the right thing for the wrong reason. The first and primary task of parenting to which everything comes second is to help your children to understand how to order their loves correctly. If you teach them to worship the right thing, then everything else falls into place. But if their love and their worship is spent on the wrong thing, then everything that follows will be put in the, in the wrong place. And if you aren't intentionally thinking about how your heart is loving and what it is loving, and how your kids' hearts are loving and what they're loving, then you're just playing at what would be called behaviorism. Right? Training people to do certain things for certain reasons rather than loving the right thing. At the very core of our being, we are worshipers and we are lovers. And this is the first thing that has to be understood in order to understand the notion of our story and how it relates to the clause of our mission statement, which is healing the broken. And that brings us to the second point that we need to make, and that's this. Being healed means worshiping the right thing the right way. We're talking about healing the broken. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means this, worshiping the right thing the right way. How do we see that in our story? You know, what amazing grace. The ten lepers are people utterly on the fringe of society. Completely. They uh, have leprosy in this time period was a term that could refer to any number of skin conditions. But because all the skin conditions were thought to be contagious, or at least most of them, they would be shut off from society, shunned, put away. And so these they have to stand at a distance, crying out for the mercy of Jesus as he goes by. And Jesus chooses this where people would have seen, well, these people, are they're outcasts. They're, they're suffering a physical condition, surely as a result of their sin. Jesus, why would you give mercy to them? Why don't you give mercy to us? We're the ones who seeking you, and we're the ones who aren't suffering for our sin. Jesus sees it as an opportunity to extend beauty and grace. And it's not only that the number of the the number of uh, individual lepers who respond to give thanks, which is one, is surprising, right? But it's also the identity of that one. He's a Samaritan. He's a foreigner, a hated half-breed who, by any Jewish person's standard, would be considered as less than a Jew. And he is the one who has come back to give thanks to the Messiah. How in the world could the other nine lepers not return? Right? I mean, think about it. You're cut off from society as a result of a skin condition you suffer that most people are going to think is your fault. The person heals you, returning you to your family, your home, society, and you don't make time to say thank you. I was thinking, what, how ridiculous. I just started to think about how many times I pray for something, and that prayer is answered, and I don't remember to say Thanks how prone our hearts are to a lack of gratitude to God who would do so much on our behalf. So why is that? Why is it that we have such a hard time saying thank you and having hearts of gratitude? The passage doesn't tell us exactly why the nine lepers don't return, but clearly it's a teaching moment for Jesus that they don't have a very good reason and that the one who has returned has done the right thing. What fell short for the other nine? We can't be sure, but perhaps there are things that we can reflect on in our own lives that keep us from being grateful that might be related to what the nine lepers experienced. Sometimes we're not thankful because we are unhappy or disappointed about what has been done for us, right? We're, We're unhappy when our reality falls short of the expectations that we have for our life. We have expectations often that Jesus would do much for us, What? When are you frustrated with God? Your frustration might indicate when you don't feel like God is delivering on the expectations that you have on him. And are your expectations really about being healed the way he wants to heal you? Or are your expectations more about having the life you want to have? And are you frustrated and disappointed because he hasn't given you your vision of the perfect life or the American dream or whatever it is you want? And this disappointment, if we sit in the Spirit, makes us terribly ungrateful. When Sarah's dad revealed uh, that he was turning himself in in the morning, you, you, Sarah's only 12, so we have to give her a degree of um, grace, but she had the most interesting reaction. Uh, she said, what does this have to do with me? And how am I going to help rebuild this family? I'm 12, All right. And uh, you have to understand that the next day, Sarah was in the school play. And she went on to say, you know, this is just perfect. Her mother had suggested that they all stay home from school because this was going to become a public matter. And Sarah said, no, this is just perfect. You always make big announcements the night before the school play. Granddaddy died the night before the Wizard of Oz. Here we go again. This always happens. Don't you people get it? When you miss school, you are not allowed to participate in the after-school activities. I hate you. And she ran off, granted 12, but at that place can't possibly appreciate the nobleness of what her father is doing, the nobility of owning his heir and repenting of it in a serious way. All she can see is how it affects her. And she has expectations that the next day she's going to be a brilliant star in the school play and her expectations are being destroyed by the reality that's presented to her and therefore she's incredibly disappointed and can't possibly be grateful for something that she really will end up being incredibly grateful for. How often, when we have these expectations of the world and life, reality crashes in and we say, we're so disappointed that we can't be thankful we can't express gratitude in the midst of what we are experiencing. Another possible reason for our lack of gratitude is the incredible spirit of entitlement that exists in our culture today, that we deserve something. In my home, it's, uh, it's not uncommon for a child to uh, articulate that they have the right to play on the iPhone. They have done their chores, they've done their homework, they've been kind to their sibling, right? all behaviors, and they've been all doing it for the time on the iPhone. And so, you owe me, Dad. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm ready for my time on the iPhone. It's amazing how young this sense of sinful humanity where we think that we deserve to be rewarded for doing what we're supposed to be doing. How young it starts and how it much it messes us up. And when we take the attitude to the story of the Bible, well, God, you know, you created the world and knew this was going to happen. You know, it's not all on me. I wasn't in the garden. You didn't leave the choice up to me. I'm doing largely what I'm supposed to be doing, so why don't you give to me what I want? I'm entitled, not only to salvation, but to all other sorts of things. And I want you to deliver on that now. And because of the spirit of entitlement, if you're not delivering, then, well, I'm certainly not going to express gratitude or be thankful. And your relationship with God is further alienated as a result of your lack of gratitude. And how miserable it is to live. You all know people who are in you know, gratitude is a scale. You can think of people who go through life who are incredibly thankful and they're a blessing to be around, and you can think of people who go around life never being thankful, and it's like the Charlie Brown character with the cloud around them. It's this huge pool of misery around them, and you don't, you don't want to be anywhere near it because you feel like you're being sucked into a black hole. What Sarah couldn't appreciate at the time and what she would come to appreciate later in life is her dad would have to become a paralegal. He's disbarred for the rest of his life. Her mother would have to go back to work. They would have to move into a much poorer section of town. And it's the best thing that ever happened to their family. Because instead of always being dissatisfied and looking for the next thing, her parents became grateful for what they had. And the house became a place of joy and excitement and pleasure in service to the community, and in doing the right thing. And Sarah was able to grow up for the rest of her years in that rather than what her home had been previously. It's a far better environment in which to exist. How do we do it? If we talk about really going through life with a spirit of deep gratitude, it's hard, right? It's difficult. We're far more oriented to think about what we don't have and what God is not doing for us than what He is doing for us and what we do have. One great practice of the church, which used to be a very regular practice of the church, and I think has been set aside to our detriment, is that people would intentionally pray simply thanksgiving. would sit down and list for themselves um, all of the things that they could be thankful for, and actually intentionally prayed without making a single request. When was the last time you prayed without making a single request? Simply expressing thanksgiving for all the things that God has done for you in the midst of your life. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances in all circumstances. One of the best examples I've ever seen in my entire life of giving thanks in all circumstances is the story of Corrie Ten Boom and her wife or her sister, Betsy, who uh, suffered in the Nazi concentration camps of World War II. At one point in their life, they were moved to a new camp called Ravensbrück. And uh, Ravensbrück was a terrible place, but... Corey, in writing her story, The Hiding Place, comments that the most unusual thing happened at at Ravensbrook. She said, Our earthly conditions actually declined while we were there. Everything got worse. But she said, Our sense of joy and thrill over what God was providing for us increased. Right? Amazingly, uh, what you, counterintuitive you would say, well, as things are getting better, I'll give more thanks to God. But they said, no, things got worse, and our joy in the Lord increased. Well, how did that happen? As they're being transferred, um, they were pretty frustrated. They walked into the room. It was a small room that would house some 30 women. It was squalid, and um, it was saturated with fleas. And this was a new, new thing that they hadn't encountered yet. And... Betsy, who was thinking on this passage in First Thessalonians that they had read, uh says this. That's it, Corey. That's his answer, give thanks in all circumstances. Right? They're in a concentration camp in World War II. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her, then around me at the dark, foul-aired room, such as I said, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I look down at the Bible. Yes. Thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas. And for the fleas, this was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. Don't you hate people like that? (laughs) It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. And so the story goes forth, and what happens is people, women from all kinds of different countries who speak different languages are gathered in this room. And daily they will read from the Dutch Bible that Corey and Betsy, who were Dutch, have, and it would be translated by women to the rest of the women in the barracks. So daily everyone heard the word of God, and many came to faith. And all the while, they're puzzled that the guards aren't hassling them. They're doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, and they're never being inspected, because on an inspection that found a Bible, the Bible would be confiscated, and they get to keep the Bible. And it's only later on where actual ruckus occurs, and they ask for the guards' intervention, and the guards say, no, we're not coming into your room. We're not going to be exposed to the fleas. Do they realize that the fleas are the very thing that has given them freedom and protection in the midst of the cell? Why they've been able to minister to all those these people. You know, I, I mourn and pray that Dave's situation would, would come to an end early, but at a prayer meeting for him just a week ago, some were praying that he would be the opportunity for the faith to be expressed. And two, two men, one Chinese, heard the story of the gospel of Jesus through Dave and had come to faith in an Ethiopian jail. Be thankful in all circumstances. As a pastor, I sometimes, this is actually something I'm not very good at, I'm trying to get better at. I often get frustrated. You know, in ministry, you, you always have this hope and desire for people to, to be healed and to draw near to Jesus. And sometimes in ministry, it feels like for every one success story, there, there are multiple failures. And that's not a fun ratio to live under. You, you often feel like, oh, I'd just like to see more wins. I'd like to see, see Jesus come forth. And so being convicted of that, I said, well, I'm just going to pray Thanksgiving. And so I started, and it, it actually went on and on. And I realized how many things I was neglecting, not being thankful for. It's so easy when you go down the road of, of, of being trapped by expectations and entitlement to see uh, what's not happening, to focus on disappointment. Cynicism pours in. But when you force discipline yourself to actually go through a process of being thankful, it's a wonderful blessing a miraculous way in which to see the hand of God at work all around you where you are often neglecting it. Worshiping the right thing in this story is worshiping Jesus. And only the Samaritan returns to fall down before the Lord and to give thanks and praise to God. The other nine fail to return and go on to worship something else. And this is how we know that the other nine were not really healed. You get that in the story, right? Well, They were healed from their leprosy. Don't get me wrong. But notice what Jesus says towards the end of the passage. He says, rise and go your way after engaging the Samaritan in particular. Your faith has made you well. Right? It's an odd thing unless you start to think about it. Everyone was made well. Jesus is saying something very particular to the Samaritan after the result of him returning to him and giving praise and falling down and worshiping him. Commentators agree that at this point, Jesus isn't talking about being made well from leprosy. He's saying, no, you've experienced salvation. Because your healing has, has been brought together with faith and you've fallen down and worshiped the right thing. You've been made well at a much deeper level. Isn't it ironic that the healing from the leprosy for the other nine because they're not worshiping the right thing may actually be bad for them? Because it will only free them up to throw more of themselves into perhaps the wrong thing. But for the Samaritan who has returned, he's freed to pour his love into the right thing and to worship the right thing the right way. And this brings us to our last and briefer point. Which is this. When you worship the right thing the right way, you engage in God's mission. Right? You almost don't even have to think about it. When you worship the right thing the right way, you become part of God's mission. How does the man praise God after being healed? With a loud voice, he gives praise to God. Before the crowds, he falls at Jesus' feet. The Samaritan knows what he has received. He knows His story did not have to go this way, right? That's the spirit of entitlement, that my story should go the way I want it to, that the way I expect. But the man knows, otherwise he would not be falling down at the feet of Jesus, that my story didn't have to go this way. I didn't have to be healed. Jesus did this in grace and mercy. And that moves him to respond appropriately. As the Samaritan worships the right thing, Jesus, the right way, by falling down in worship, He makes a public profession that extends the healing of Jesus to others. And in so doing, he's engaged in mission. He becomes a spectacle of articulating right love the right way. This is something that I think we've lost some skill at in the church. And one of the reasons I think that the church has lost some of its saltiness is because I hear many times us articulating far more eloquently our passion for Breaking Bad or the new beer or the iPhone 5 or a new movie more than I see us or hear us articulating our passion and love for Jesus. What does that reveal about what we really love? What does that reveal about what really stirs the passion of our hearts? If Jesus is the thing that we love the most and worship the most, then our public confession and our public posture will give praise and thanksgiving to Him in such a way that it communicates that He's the thing we love the most. And in that, we need to change. We need to get better at it. And so how are we going to do it? Well, I've given you one individual suggestion which is to actually practice and discipline yourself to simply be grateful before God and to think about what He's done for you. And out of that, hopefully things will begin to change in your public confession and in your public posture. But at the same time, we need to grow as a community in this. And so beginning in October, we're going to have our first night of prayer, which will happen on the second Sunday of each month, hopefully forever. Beyond all of our deaths, our children will continually be doing this. Right? And so we're going to gather for one hour. And while the children go and I work on Scripture memory, we are going to be here. And what are we going to do? We're going to sing praise, and we're going to pray thanksgiving. And yes, we'll make some requests to God, but we're going to intentionally practice at getting very good at praising and thanking God for what He's done. And in that, we're going to be transformed. We're going to, be going to become a people who are actually profoundly grateful for the work of Jesus Christ. And in that, our saltiness will become very salty indeed. We'll be light. And as people come and taste our worship and our gratitude to the one who has healed us, we extend that healing to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the healing that you have commenced in our own lives. We thank you for the healing, that you allow us to participate in extending to others what privilege to participate in your mission. Thank you that our healing has come through Jesus, and thank you that you are merciful and have had compassion. Thank you that you healed the lepers and did not leave them outsiders, and as a lesson to us all, the one who was most the outsider became the closest insider. Thank you, Father, for your grace. We pray that you would make us a people of great gratitude. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.